Jesus asked many questions that cut to the heart of the matter and revealed truth to those who listened. But what can these questions teach us about life and God in our modern times? Find out today on the Central Baptist Podcast. The scripture reading for today is Luke 2, 41-52. Please turn to Luke 2 in your Bible or follow along on the Sermon Notes handout or with the words on the screen. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, and when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went to the day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand what he was saying. And he went down to them and came to Nazareth, and he was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Amen. Thank you so much, Caitlin. Well, I'm also pretty new on staff here. As you know, my name is Phil Horton, and, uh, but it feels a little bit like old home week because uh, last week we welcomed Kevin and Christy Thiessen uh, among us for a few weeks, so glad to have them here. And today, Jordan and Marilyn Rendell are here, missionaries from uh, Middle East and uh, their family, and they'll be here for a few weeks. It's so good to have you with us. God bless you. Well, I'm not normally a person who's known as an excitable fellow, but I am excited this morning uh, to kick off this teaching series, which we're calling Questions Jesus Asked. And I'm excited about this series because I believe it's an incredible privilege for us to do this together this summer. We have an incredible privilege to walk alongside Jesus all summer long. We have an incredible privilege to sit in his presence and to slowly absorb the words of Jesus. And so as we engage this series, as we launch it, I want to invite you to use your imagination. So imagine that you're not sitting here 2022 in an auditorium in Victoria or perhaps at home on your couch. But imagine that together, there we are 2,000 years ago on a grassy slope looking over the Sea of Galilee, huge crowd, and we're straining to hear what the teacher is saying. Or perhaps, perhaps we are in the temple or somewhere around the temple in Jerusalem, and we're there and it's very crowded because it's hot and sweaty and people are pressing in against us because everyone wants to get close to the teacher. Many of the people around you have been healed by Jesus. 
or perhaps one of their family members has been healed by Jesus. And now they eagerly want to hear what Jesus has to say. There's a buzz in the crowd because they're saying this person teaches differently than anyone else. This person teaches like someone who has authority. But we're noticing something as we listen to Jesus teach. We're noticing that Jesus asks a lot of questions. In fact, he seems to ask many more questions than he offers answers. It seems to be fundamental to his teaching style. 400 years or so before Jesus was born, there was a man by the name of Socrates who was born, a Greek philosopher. Socrates was known for his, his questioning. He lived his life asking questions in order to learn, but also asking questions in order to teach. And after him, there has been named, in fact, a teaching style known as the Socratic method of teaching, where a teacher uses questions in his teaching. And it seems that Jesus, our master teacher, was highly skilled in asking questions. If you search on the internet books that talk about the questions Jesus asked, you'll actually get quite a few hits because we're not the only ones to notice this. And people have written books, short books, long books on this topic. Some years ago, a man by the name of Martin Copenhaver did a count. He wanted to know how many questions actually did Jesus ask. And so he went through the four gospels that are there at the beginning of the New Testament section of the Bible that tell the story of Jesus and counted. And he came up with these numbers. 307, 183, and eight. So which one of those do you think represents the number of unique questions that Jesus asked? Well, I won't ask you for your responses because I didn't bring any prizes with me. But here it is, 307, according to different people counted in different ways, probably, but Martin Copenhaver suggests Jesus answer asked 307 unique questions that are recorded in, our, in the four Gospels. 183 is the number of questions that people asked of Jesus, and eight is the number of direct answers to questions that Jesus actually gave. It's fascinating, isn't it? Jesus is often thought of as the answer man. And while it's true that Jesus actually is the answer to all of life, what we want to pay special attention to in these summer Sunday mornings is his teaching style. And what we discover as we pay attention to his teaching is that Jesus seems a lot more prone to ask questions than to give answers. But he's giving these questions, he's asking these strategic questions in order to catch the attention of his listeners and drive his points home with great power and great authority. Jesus truly is a master teacher. Just before we come to our first question, I would like to just ask a question of purpose. Why are we doing this study together? 
And so let me put a slide on the screen just to talk about the goal. What are, we, what are we seeking to accomplish in our Sunday mornings together? The goal of this series is that we each Sunday would enter into the life of Jesus by means of observing his strategic use of questions. And pay attention to the wording there. Our goal is that not just that we hear, not just that we learn a few things, not just that we can write them down and take them home with us, but that we might actually enter into the life of Jesus. Jesus said at one point in his teaching, I am the vine and you are the branches. And what was his command in that analogy? It's to abide in me, right? Be plugged into me. Just before he went to the cross, he was talking with his friends and he said to them, in that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Just yesterday I was reading a book by Dane Ortland that Martha gave me recently and he was talking in this one chapter about what it means to be united with Christ and what he was saying and what was really what really stood out to me from his comments was that this idea of of the of the follower of Jesus being united in life with Jesus is foundational for us to understand what the life of a Christian looks like, what the life of a follower of Jesus looks like. We need to focus on what it means to be united with Jesus. What does that look like as we live our lives? And so it's our goal as we look at these questions that Jesus asked, not just to be stimulated in our heads, but that it will affect every part of who we are and that we would really have a sense of entering into the life of Jesus as he's calling us to live. Our desire really is threefold, and let me say it this way. Our desire is, first of all, in fact, to be challenged by his teaching. That means we want to think well, right? We need to think truth as Jesus teaches it to us. We want to think well. We want to be transformed in our minds, as Paul calls us in Romans 12. But not only that, but we also want to be enthralled with his wisdom. We want to worship well. So it's not just learning in our heads. It's responding with our hearts that we would in fact worship Jesus in a new way as we observe his teaching. But not only will we think well and worship well, but that we will allow the teaching of Jesus to go deep into our souls and change us so that we will become more like Jesus, so that we will live well. So, are you ready for this journey? If I was a youth worker, I'd be, are you ready for this journey? Let's pray. Father, we come to you, Holy Spirit of God. We ask you to reveal Jesus to us as we begin. Holy Spirit, thank you. Thank you for the gift of your word. Open our hearts that we may receive. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's question number one, the full version. It's actually two questions. Caitlin read it to us a few moments ago. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? These actually are the first recorded words of Jesus in the gospel account. And let's be clear from the start, these are not actually the words of Jesus, the adult teacher. These are the words of Jesus, the preteen boy. He's 12 years old. 
And here's what I pray that we might discover through this story. What I pray is that we might discover that Jesus is, and Jesus is presented to us in the Gospels, as a boy who was quite like, in many ways, other preteen human boys. But that there is another way, and another way that he is very aware of, that Jesus is absolutely different from any other human that's ever been on the earth. We discover something of Jesus' awareness of his self-identity. I found this to be a powerful and beautiful study. So let's engage it, shall we? Let's set up the scene again. Please come with me and your minds to the temple 2,000 years ago. It's been a hectic week here in the temple with all of the traditions around Passover. And Mary and Joseph, they come there every year. They come every year from Nazareth down to, to Jerusalem. And they don't just come by themselves. They gather together their friends and acquaintances and they travel as a large group down from Nazareth in the north to Jerusalem to the temple in order to celebrate the feast of Passover. Passover there. Passover has just finished. And the group, the crowd, friends, acquaintances, I don't know how many people, but this crowd has packed stuff on their donkeys and they're heading north again to Nazareth and they're traveling for a whole day. Jesus is now 12 years old. At his next birthday, he will become what's called a son of the commandments in the celebration that's known as Bar Mitzvah. Somehow in the confusion of that departure day, Mary and Joseph didn't realize that Jesus had not joined the crowd of travelers to return to Galilee. And they traveled that whole first day. And can you imagine at the end of that first day what panic would have set into the hearts of Joseph and Mary at the realization that their son, Jesus, is missing? I wonder if you've ever felt that panic, perhaps lost a kid in the bazaar or in the shop or several years ago, well, 2007 it was, two week, or two years rather before my first wife Barb passed away, we had the privilege to go to Italy and we went to Siena and the streets of Siena were crowded and crowded and really crowded pre-COVID of course and uh, there we were walking through the streets of Siena, we just arrived that day and in the midst of the crowd suddenly we lost each other. We weren't carrying cell phones. We didn't really know how to get to where we were staying. We had no plan to where we were gonna connect. And for a very brief moment, which felt like forever, my heart was gripped with the sense of, what do we do now? There's a panic. Can you imagine Jesus, or rather Mary and Joseph? That whole day has gone by and Jesus is not with them. The whole next day they travel back to Jerusalem. The whole following day after that they travel throughout Jerusalem looking for their firstborn son. And this is what they found right here. They found him in the temple sitting among the teachers, listening to them, asking them questions and all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers which could also be translated responses. And this sets up a scene where we have what at least on the surface appears to be a heated exchange of questions between Mary and Jesus. 
And I say what appears on the surface because I want to ask some questions about the appearance of this. It certainly looks like an exchange of, of heated questions between Mary and the still preteen Jesus. But let's ask the Holy Spirit of God to guide us carefully as we seek to get underneath what the initial surface might appear and see what is really going on, first of all, in the heart of Mary as she asks her question, and then secondly, into the heart of Jesus as he asks his question. First then, let's look at Mary's question. Verse 48 says this, and when his parents saw him, they found him at the temple there, they were astonished, and his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Can you imagine the feelings of Mary as she's saying these words? Eugene Peterson, as he is wont to do in his translation, the message translation of the Bible, helps us perhaps to get underneath and see some of those emotions more, more, more clearly. This is what he says in the message translation of the same verse. He says this, but his parents were not impressed. They were upset and hurt. His mother said, young man, why have you done this to us? Your father and I have been half out of our minds looking for you. What words would you use to describe what's going on in Mary's heart here? It's deep anxiety giving way to a flood of relief. Her words reflect the overflow of pent-up emotion over three days of searching for their firstborn son. Now let's step back from the emotion of the moment because we have the unique privilege of historical perspective here. We can step back and look at it with an impassive view because we're not caught up so much in the intensity of the emotion. So let me ask this question as we step back and look at it from historical perspective. What does Mary know about Jesus that might have caused her to ask this question a little bit differently? What does Mary know already about the identity of Jesus in particular? And before, before we explore a little of what Mary already knew, let me be very clear to say that the following observations in no way should cause us to think less of Mary for responding in this way. Would any of us have responded any differently? I don't think so. What I long for us to do, though, is to discover why, after this incident is all over and after they've rejoined as a family in Nazareth, why is it that the text tells us that his mother treasured up all of these things in her heart? What was Mary learning through this? In fact, I believe this whole incident is an incredibly strong teaching moment. It's like a gift for Mary and Joseph, I believe, to remind them of the true identity of this son who looks so much like his siblings, but was yet very different from them. I believe this incident for Mary would have been an incident which strengthened her faith. It strengthened her faith to have yet another little bit more understanding of who this Jesus was in what a, must have been a very confusing time. 
So let's ask, what does Mary already know? What has she already been told about the identity of Jesus? In order to find this out, we need to jump back into Luke chapter 1. And in Luke chapter 1, Mary receives a visit by an angel. A visit by an angel whose name is Gabriel. This is history-making history stuff. Who receives visits from angels? We know this angel's name was Gabriel, and he comes to Mary with this amazing announcement. It begins, Luke chapter 1, verse 30, he says this, And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, and he will be great, and he will be called, what? The Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. The text goes on, and Mary responds to the angel. He says, how will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, and pay attention to this, the Son of God. Please try to enter into this announcement. Put yourself in Mary's place. Through this supernatural messenger, Mary is told that something will happen that is not only unprecedented in human history, it's also biologically impossible. So can we give her some space and grace to not fully grasp all of the significance of this announcement. But we ask from a historical perspective, we ask the question, whose son is Jesus? Who is the father of Jesus? Jesus is categorically described in this announcement here as the son of God. How does Mary understand it? We don't know for sure. But certainly, from the purity of her virginity, Mary knew that although Jesus seemed to be very human, yet he was also very different from any other human who had ever lived on the face of the earth. So let's come back and look at her question once more. Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. In the, in the Greek in which Luke wrote this text, the way it's written, his, her, your father is the emphasis in that phrase, as I understand it. Your father and I have been searching for you. Mary, don't you remember? Mary certainly knew that Joseph was not the actual father of Jesus. I believe yet this still to be a very natural thing for her to say. You know, the Bible is silent over what has happened over the past 10 or 12 years as Jesus has been growing up. We don't know what the household looks like, looks like in Nazareth. But what I would imagine is that it was pretty normal human life. Joseph and Mary had more children and Joseph was really functionally the father of Jesus and the other children. And I wonder, as those 12 years went by for dear Mary, 
Though she had been shocked by this announcement in Luke chapter 1, after 12 years of pretty normal human life, I wonder if that announcement might be fading a bit in her memory. This incident, I believe, comes into her life to remind her that this Jesus is different than than her other children and just different from any other human person who's ever lived. So let's turn now in response to see the question that Jesus asks and try to get into the heart of Jesus here as much as we can. Jesus responds and says, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Unfortunately, we do not have the luxury of a video or audio recording of this. So how can we know the tone of Jesus's voice? 12 year old boy, as he's asking this question. We have to look for clues in the context to determine the possible tone of voice. A couple of years ago, I remember a COVID-friendly Zoom Bible study that we had in Bishkek where we were living, and there was an Australian man on this Zoom call, and I remember him saying to me, I, I just don't get this story. I have a lot of trouble with this story because it, I know that Jesus is supposed to be sinless, but it just seems like he's being rude to his mother here. Well, you can read different commentators and they wrestle with this and we can't just take stories in isolation. We have to look at the whole story of scripture, right? John Noland in the Word Biblical Commentary makes this comment. He says, Jesus' response is frequently read as a counter accusation, right? The heated argument between mother and son. But it's important to note that while in the aftermath of the incident, the parents are left with much food for thought, and we saw that in Mary treasuring these things up in her heart, Nolan notes that it's Jesus whose behavior is modified because he is the one who goes back and, and lives in submission to them. And so Nolan concludes, as we see at the bottom of the screen, Jesus' question then should be seen as reflecting genuine surprise and not reproach. Can we go back one slide, please? Jesus' question should be seen then as reflecting genuine surprise and not reproach. Well, we could go back and forth on this, But let's assume for a moment that this to be a a reasonable conclusion because I want to jump to really the more more important question of the content of the question that Jesus has here. Do you notice anything in Jesus' question that surprises you? Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Where is Jesus? Jesus. Jesus is in the temple. What is the temple? Well, for any believing Jew in those days, the temple was God's space. The the most holy space was in the temple. That's where God lived among his people. It's the dwelling place of God on earth. Way back in the story of Exodus, we read about how God instructed Moses to build the tabernacle. And in the middle of the tabernacle, there was this most holy space. That's where God was going to come down and live close to his people. And we read about the Shekinah glory, this, this unapproachable light that came down and filled that space. And people could not go in there. They had to be protected by the, 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 the curtain 
Because if sinful people went into the holy presence of God, they would be burned up. This is the space where God lived. Further on, as the people of Israel settled in the land of promise, they built the temple as the more permanent house of God. This is where God lived. This was his dwelling place on earth. And now here we have this 12-year-old boy saying to his parents, didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? This not only stands in stark contrast to what Mary had just said, your father and I have been looking for you. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? These words are not only in contrast to what Mary said, but they would have been shocking to those who were standing around, the teachers of the law. The teachers of the law would certainly have been shocked at these words. How could this Jesus, as a preteen boy, be claiming to be the Son of God? Because that's what he's doing in this question. He is claiming to be the Son of God. We are left with few options as to how to think about this. As with much of Jesus' later teachings, it seems like we're left with two options. Option one is to say, well, this must be simply a precocious 12-year-old kid who doesn't really know what he's saying. He's speaking back to his mother and he's uttering these words of blasphemy. That's one option. Option two would to be respond like Mary and to treasure these words of Jesus in our hearts. After this event is over, Jesus returns and lives as an obedient, submissive child to his parents in Nazareth. And the text tells us in verse 51, his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. I want to suggest to you that there's no, there's no middle ground between these two options. You cannot look at this story closely and simply say, what a nice, obedient child Jesus was. You have to look at this story and say either he was a precocious blasphemer or he really is the son of God that he claims to be. So how may we respond like Mary and treasure up all these things in our hearts? We treasure, first of all, I want to suggest we treasure the gift of this story. This story is a real gift to us. As we see, this is the only story recorded in the childhood of Jesus you know, at Christmas, we stand in awe of God becoming a baby. And later on, as we read through the teaching of Jesus as an adult, we stand in awe of God become human and listening to his claims. Through this story, we may contemplate the wonder that Jesus didn't skip childhood. And we may even treasure the wonder of God as a 12-year-old boy living in submission to his parents. Also, I want to say another thing that we can treasure from this story, and this story is really sort of at a middle point in the story of the Bible, of course, but I want to treasure this idea of temple because Jesus is in the temple. He's saying it's God's house. Follow with me just briefly the trajectory of the temple in the story of Scripture. In the Old Testament, 
as we talked about, Moses built this, this temporary dwelling for God. Then it became the, the brick and mortar permanent building, which was the place where God lived in the Old Testament section of the Bible. Now Jesus is saying, I'm here in my father's house. But if we go fast forward into Jesus's life, one of the most controversial things that Jesus said was, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. What is Jesus claiming there? The gospel writers make it absolutely clear for us that Jesus is claiming that now the temple is no longer that brick and mortar space. Now the temple is my body, Jesus says. This is the dwelling place of God on earth. And then if we move forward from there into the book of Acts, if Jesus goes back to his father, what happens? The Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost and lives in the lives of every follower of Jesus. And every follower of Jesus then becomes the temple, the place where God lives on earth. And so Paul will say in the book of Corinthians, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? And collectively, as we gather together, we are the space where God lives on earth. As Paul will say in Ephesians, in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. We are now the temple of God on earth. And this story stands right in the middle of that trajectory, and it's a beautiful thing to observe. I am in my father's house. I'd like to make one more observation about the story. I would like to call it parallel words and parallel stories. So I'll put these two verses on the screen. The first one, of course, is the one we've been looking at in Luke chapter two, where Jesus says, Why were you looking for me? Did you know that I must be? And I want to look at parallel words first. This word, I must be, can be translated, it is necessary. So did you not know that it is necessary for me to be in my father's house? And what I believe Luke, Dr. Luke, who's writing the gospel, this account of the story of Jesus, he's giving us bookend stories of the life of Jesus that have a great uh, sense of parallel. And so in Luke 24, this is a question that we're going to come to later in our series, but this is the two walking on the road to Emmaus. You remember the resurrected Jesus is there and he's, and he's walking alongside beside them and revealing to them the story of the Bible. Beautiful story that we're gonna look at. But notice what he says here. The same word, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? So I believe Luke is doing kind of like bookends of the life of Jesus. It was necessary for me to be in my father's house. And then the resurrected Jesus says, it is necessary that I should have suffered in order to accomplish the work of God. But think for a moment with me about those stories, those incidents. In both incidents, Jesus is lost for three days. Lost or missing or dead for three days. Those three days are full of grief and anxiety for those who are missing Jesus. But upon once being found again, Jesus expresses in both instances a quiet confidence in his knowledge that God is working out his good purposes. It's necessary for me to be in my father's house or about my father's business. It was necessary for me to suffer before entering into glory. It's an amazing story. Carries a lot of weight, perhaps more weight than we commonly recognize. I'd like to invite the music team to begin to make their way back to the front. And as we ask this question, here's the question I would like us to ask as we come to conclusion. 
in light of all that we have considered, how does this text invite us to respond? How does this text invite us to respond? I want to suggest the first response is to worship Jesus, the Son of God. Even as a 12-year-old boy, Jesus had this sense, this knowledge that he really was the Son of God. Though he was like us in so many ways, even in this very first question that we observe, we discover he is radically different from any other human who has ever lived. He is the eternal Son of God come to earth and the revealer of God and the rescuer of humans. So worship, worship Jesus, the Son of God. Secondly, let's respond by knowing who we are. If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, your body is the temple, the dwelling place of God on earth. Your body is. No matter where you go, let's say you go to work tomorrow, you're sitting at the lunch table, you can say, I am in my father's house. Maybe don't say it out loud. People might not understand you. But pay attention to that. Your body is the dwelling place of God on earth. How does that make a difference in the choices that you make moment by moment, day by day? So we seek to worship. We seek to know who we are as the dwelling place of God on earth. And finally, we seek to live out God's good purposes. One of the amazing features of this story is that Jesus has this sense of purpose. I'm in, I'm a, I'm in my father's house. I'm, I'm about my father's business. I, I'm doing what I came to do. So let us also, in the decisions that we make regarding how we spend our time, what education we pursue, what relationships we pursue, let us be sure to be attentive to the purposes of God in our lives. As we have learned over the past weeks in our study on the Lord's Prayer, let us continually be in conversation with our Father in heaven and say, your will be done on, on earth in my life as it is in heaven. Would you join me in prayer? Holy Spirit of God, thank you for answering our prayer. Thank you for teaching us about Jesus. We stand in awe of the reality of, of God, almighty God, creator of everything that exists, growing up as a boy, living in submission to his parents, and yet having this sense of identity and purpose. Humble us before you today. Open our hearts to be responsive. Help us worship Jesus for who he is. Help us to receive the identity that we have, that our bodies really are the temple of the Holy Spirit, that you, in ways that we cannot fully grasp, you choose to live in us. Help us to enter into your life, Lord Jesus. And then help us to live life with purpose walking with you in every decision of life. Let us be attentive and responsive and obedient, I pray. In the beautiful name of Jesus, amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and gatherings, visit us at centralbaptistchurch.ca. 
Thanks for listening to the Central Baptist Podcast.